Well, good morning. Today's our last sermon covering primeval history as recorded in Scripture, Genesis 1 through 11. Next Sunday will be our series-ending reflection service, so consider what's especially blessed you over these first 11 chapters, and then be ready next week to bless others with your insights and your observations. And then the week following that, we begin a little three-part series entitled, Summer is for Salvation, during which we'll be reminded of the importance of the gospel, uh, the greatness of our gospel-hearted God, and the power of gospel proclamation in and throughout our lives. So that's what's coming in the weeks ahead. Well, looking back, as you uh, well know by now, Genesis is a book of beginnings, uh, the beginning of creation, the heavens, the earth, uh, flora, fauna, as well as man and woman created in God's image and for his glory. Genesis also records the beginning of some great human evils, but the greater kindness of God. Uh, that while starting here in this book, continue on through the scriptures, uh, things like sin and death and grace and redemption. The importance of these big matters, especially the the historic ones, uh, can be easily overlooked due to the brevity of this uh, portion of scripture. Uh, Consider this. The time between Genesis 1 and 11, which only takes up eight pages in my Bible, may be longer than the period of history beginning in Genesis 12 to the present day. So it's sometimes easy to think, well, all that is not, boy, that happened, so it didn't really matter all that much. No, actually, that was a big chunk of history. It's amazing. In Genesis 1 through 11, we've also witnessed the beginning of certain rhythms, uh, such as the highs and the lows of primeval history, the highs being God's grace and the lows being uh, the sin of man and woman. So you have the high of creation, where God declares everything to be good, yea, very good, and then you've got the low of Adam's sin and then the subsequent murder of Abel. Then there was the pre-flood time of prosperity and long life, surely a high point, but then it's followed by the low of God's judgment by way of the flood due to uh, an increasingly sinful human race. And then you've got the high of a renewed covenant between God and Noah, but then that's followed by Noah's drunkenness and the curse of Canaan. So these opening stages of human history come to a crescendo and a climax here in the two chapters at which we're looking this morning, nine, or rather 10 and 11, where God tells us three things. First in chapter 10, he tells us that the Bible is real history. (laughs) It's real history. Chapter 10 is a genealogy, but it's not a Tolkien-esque genealogy. Uh, 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 about a made-up people with a made-up language that communicates a made-up history. No, rather, this is an account of historic peoples 
who spoke historic languages that provide an entree into an historic account of which you and I are a part. We'll see that in just a moment. And in this historic account, we will see, and here's the second uh, uh, point this morning, beginning in chapter 11, hubris leads to hopelessness. Hubris leads to hopelessness. And we'll see it as we watch men and women mount their greatest uh, anti-God campaign yet, shutting the book on primeval history with no human hope of a happy sequel in sight. But that didn't leave the ancients, nor does it leave us without hope, because as, as we'll finally see, and this is the third point for this morning also in chapter 11, hope is found in God. It's not found in human wisdom, but rather in God's word. So that's the way ahead this morning. Uh, uh, the Bible is real history. Hubris leads to hopelessness, but hope is found in God. Now, as you probably noticed, the scripture has not yet been read this morning. And that's because it's easy to miss what's in a genealogy, uh, just like it's easy to miss uh, what's in the night sky. You look up and you think all you're looking at is stars, but you're really looking at those and planets and constellations and the periodic satellite that uh, uh, floats by or looking into a forest and thinking that all you're looking at are trees, when in fact you're looking at pines and firs and spruces. So before uh, the scripture is read for us this morning, I want us to get acquainted with what's in, especially chapter 10, so that we can revel in its reality and appreciate its importance. And we'll do that by considering four quick facts on Genesis chapter 10. The first one being found in verse one, Genesis 10 is about the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. This is one of 10 family accounts throughout the book of Genesis. It's been said along the way that these accounts are what actually divide uh, the book up. But what's interesting about this account as opposed to all the others is that while their story this is genealogy. Um, and, and so I lost my place. I got so into what I was saying. I lost my place. It's a record of God's blessing on sustained human life, which tells us, and here's, here's the second fact, that everyone has a common ancestor. No matter where they lived, no matter where they moved, as far north as the Caucasus Mountains, Far south is the Arabian Peninsula, east to the Iranian Plateau, west to the Aegean Sea, maybe even up to Spain, and all according to God's sovereign distribution, they were each one related to Noah. And since the flood left nobody alive other than Noah, not only were they related to each other, but that means you and I have a common great-grandfather in Noah. We are all related to one another. And not only do we share a common ancestor, but here's fact number three. Genealogy reveals that we share a common creator. So not only are these diverse branches of the post-flood world united by blood, 
they are also united by a common bond, a, a bond of responsibility to their creator whose image that they bear. So by origin and by obligation, everybody, everybody in this room, everybody in La Mirada, Southern California, the United States, around the world can truly say we are God's children because we are. Now this means, you'd think, that all people would be interested in God, but they're not, are they? Gratefully, as this genealogy reveals, and this is fact number four, God is interested in all peoples, not just his specially chosen ones. So we see here that Noah's family settled in diverse places. They represented diverse peoples, ethnically diverse, politically diverse, linguistically diverse. And by omitting Israel from this list, God makes it clear that he is just as interested in Gentiles, which I would imagine is most of us in this room, maybe not all of us, but but most of us, as, as he would be in Jews, whose beginnings are traced in this genealogy from Shem to Eber, from whose name the, the name Hebrew comes, to Peleg, who was the great, great, great grandfather of Abraham. Not only does God express his interest in these people by way of name, but also number. What do you mean by that? Well, this list is largely broken down into sevens and multiples thereof, seven being the biblical number of completion. In fact, the number of nations in this genealogy are 70, which is the product of seven and 10, also a biblical number of completion. So in this way, we we recognize God's implicit smile on this list of people. From Noah's complete, though prideful progeny of 70, will come the 70 offspring of Abraham's seed, whom we'll see in chapter 46, 27, next spring, out of which will arise the snake crusher, promised in chapter three, verse 15, whose destruction of sin and Satan we especially remembered last Easter Sunday, just one week ago. Now once again, Reveling in the historicity of this passage, I I think, is important. You know, there are people today who do not believe that the Holocaust actually occurred. There are people who truly believe that men did not land on the moon. Those people, I will submit to you, are out of step with reality. And in the same way, those who doubt the historicity of Genesis 10 are also out of step with reality, and especially that God is interested in and loves this world that he made, everything and everyone in it. So now we're going to listen to this genealogy as well as the story that follows in chapter 11, which led to the allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place that God had determined for these peoples, Acts 17, 26. Laura and Josiah will read for us.
These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, and Tiraz. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Togarma. The sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Katim, and Dodanim. From these, the coastland people spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans, in their nations. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havila, Sabta, Rama, Sabteka. The sons of Rama, she- Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, Kalneh, in the land of Shinar. From that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ir, Kalah, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kalah. That is the great city. Egypt father Ludim, Anamim, Lahabim, Nuftuhim, Pethrusim, Kalsuhim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaftorim. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, and the Hivites, and the Archites, and the Sinites, and the Arvadites, and the Zemorites, and the Hamathites. Afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed. And the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arpachshad, Lud, and Aram, the sons of Aram, Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mosh. Arpachshad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his day the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Almadad, Shalif, Hazarmaveth, Jera, Hadoram, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Abimael, Sheba, Orpher, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they lived extended from Mesha in the direction of Sephar to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, in their nations, and from these the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there, and they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had bricks for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, 
They are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. The land of Shinar was lovely. The Talmud describes it as the valley of the world. The ancient city of Babel was the foundation for the later city of Babylon, established by Nimrod, to whom we were introduced there in chapter 10, verse 10, known for his personal prowess and political power. Babel was famous as a center of architecture and engineering. We saw that in chapter 11, verses 3 and 4. And then in uh, uh, Joshua chapter 7, we're introduced to it as a purveyor of wealth and fashion. Now, to be clear, there is nothing intrinsically wrong with prowess, nor power, nor architecture, nor engineering, nor wealth, nor fashion. But you mix in a healthy dose of hubris, uh, prideful arrogance, rebellion against God, and even the sweetest plans are going to sour. So the question we have to ask here is, what, what was it against the, uh, which the Babylites were rebelling? Well, we find in verse 1 the beginning of our answer. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. Now that's not a bad thing. In fact, that, that one uh, language is a good gift of God that he gave to men and women to help them uh, a rule over his dominion. But, take a look at verse 2, the people who had populated Babel had migrated from the east, which in Genesis is the place outside of God's blessing. So you'll recall rebellious Adam and Eve were sent to the east. Ambitious Lot chose to head east. Deceitful Jacob fled to the east. Then notice that they found a plain in Shinar, which interestingly is in the same vicinity as Eden. So Genesis 1 through 11 has now come full circle. It began here and it's going to end here, which again, in and of itself isn't bad, except that the people decided that they wanted to settle here. And God didn't want them to settle down. He wanted them to spread out. You may recall in chapter 9, verse 1, God, once he had blessed Noah and his sons, he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So chapter 10 shows us that they were faithful to multiply. Chapter 11 shows us that they were not faithful to fill the earth. So instead of obeying God's command to spread out, the Babylites settled down, and as we see in verse 4, they also built up. 
They built a city. They built up a tower. The purpose of an ancient city was twofold. It was a place to worship God and a place to protect people. And Babel seems to be in keeping with those except for these two things. The God they wanted to worship was themselves and the city they wanted to build was in brazen opposition to God. Now, as for this tower, notice that its top would be in the heavens. And we see that right over here in this tower that's been uh, rendered for us, I think by, um, who was I think Mrs. Weaver did that uh, for us. And it, there at the top of it is in the clouds. Now the thing about the clouds is this, in scripture, that's God's dwelling place. The book of Genesis is clear about that in chapter 19, in chapter 21, in chapter 22. It's also the place of his authority. Psalm 103, 19, Psalm 123, 1. It's the place of his counsel, Psalm 82, 1. So just as Adam and Eve transgressed the limits of human wisdom back in chapter 3, and the sons of God transgressed the boundaries of marriage in chapter 6, here the Babylites attempt to transgress or take over the place of God. Now notice also that their purpose in doing this was to make a name for themselves. A name for themselves. One thing about moving back to Southern California from Indiana where we got all kinds of farm reports is that there's a bunch of sports radio here. And so I I listen to sports radio and it's all about who's got the name. This past week, the topic of discussion in the morning was... uh, uh, you know, is LeBron better than MJ was? Is MJ better than Westbrook? Is Westbrook better than Durant? Who's got the name? If Dan Marino had won a Super Bowl, could he be considered one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time? Or does not winning a Super Bowl disqualify him from having that name? Which team is the better of the two, the 27 Yankees or the 2016 Cubs? Who has the greatest name is of greatest concern in sports radio. But it is found in other places too, like in the presidency, right? Making a name is what presidents are supposed to do, except we call it legacy. How will they be remembered? What good work will they leave behind? Oh, so that we'll remember their name. And of course, we're given to the same kind of ambition, aren't we? We want to be known. We want to be known. We don't want to be forgotten. I lived with a guy who used to say, I don't want to die and have my name completely forgotten on the face of the earth. So we want to be known. We even want to be famous, at least appreciated, maybe even admired. But it never, ever works out the way we want it to, even if we enjoy a modicum of success. It was certainly true for Nebuchadnezzar, who one day boasted, is this not Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Yet soon thereafter, he was driven from Babylon out into a field where he lived like an animal, until as the Lord put it, Nebuchadnezzar knew that the Most High God rules the kingdoms of men 
and gives it to whom he will. It was certainly Herod's ambition when after a speech he accepted all the accolades of the crowd who, who hollered out, Acts 12, 22, the voice of a God and not a man. <laughs> because he didn't give the glory to God, the Lord struck him down. So self-ambition never makes good on its promise. But then neither, neither does opposition to God. The driving force behind the Babylonites building initiative was opposition to God's word, a desire to sit tight, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth, verse four. And the expression of their opposition was, was this tower. One scholar described it like this. This skyscraper was a symbol of the Babylonites united, titanic, societal self-assertion against God who commanded them to fill the earth. So what happens? Well, what happens occurs in verse five, which is the pivotal verse in this uh, passage. God comes down. God comes down to see the city to see the tower, which he had certainly already seen from his lofty position. But his coming down is meant to accentuate the folly of man's building up even to the place of God. It's sheer foolishness. Psalm 4.2 says that God laughs at these kinds of things. But for the Babylonites, this was no laughing matter. Because in verse six, God utters these words. Behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Now God didn't say this because he felt threatened. No, rather God said this because mankind now posed a threat to himself. Like Adam and Eve, who if left unchecked in the garden would have ushered in a history of unbridled rebellion toward their creator, so now the, these one language Babylites, if left unchecked, would usher in a history of unrestrained calamity against each other. So the Lord does a couple of things. The first thing he does is he mixes up their language which is actually a word play on the mortar that the Babylonites mixed up to build their tower. So you're going to mix up uh, cement to build a tower? I'm going to come down and confound it by mixing up your language. And the second thing he did was disperse them throughout all the earth. In other words, the tower project was sacked passage is summed up for us here in verse 9, which contains threads from throughout the text. It brings everything together for us. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. And unlike the flood story, there's no rainbow at the end of this one. The last chapter of primeval history ends on a note of confusion. 
we do well to take a moment and consider the towers of our own making. The ways that we attempt to take the place of God, to make a name for ourselves in this culture which encourages us to do so, doesn't it? Believe in yourself. If you put your mind to it, you can accomplish anything. Never give up on your dreams. Attempts that can be furthered by the educational institutions we attend, most of which, like Babel and its tower, represent the prideful and defiant spirit of their members. For many years, this is interesting, the motto of Harvard College was truth for Christ and church. Not only that, the shield of Harvard featured three books, all of which represented knowledge, two of which were turned up representing what can be known, and the third one faced down representing what only God can know. As Harvard became less about Christ and the church, that motto was reduced to the single word veritas. And that third book, which had been upside down, was turned up, representing what they believe to be the fact that man and woman have the capacity to know all things. In fact, one of the great thinkers of the 19th century uh, said the only thing that keeps one from knowing everything is his or her mortality. That man-centered spirit is pervasive throughout the academy and it creates an atmosphere that is attractive even to Christian institutions. Attempts to take over the place of God to make a name for ourselves can also be furthered in the relationships that we pursue. Our tendency can be to turn to them as towers of security, right? Lord, I'll, I'll find my meaning in this person. I'll find my security in this person. I'll find my future in this person, even if that person sometimes treats us badly. And because our tower-building spirit goes with us wherever we do, these attempts can be realized in any area of our life. Athletics, art, where the tower is often greatness and notoriety, Uh, uh, professions and trades, where the tower is often power and wealth, government and family, where the tower is often authority and control. And just like the Babylites, God's response to our attempts to take over his place, to make a name for ourselves, is also found in Psalm 2-4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. So what hope? What hope is there in this passage? Well, the hope we find, this is tough for American ears to hear, the hope that we find is realized in God's judgment. It's realized in his judgment because if the Babylites would not obey God's command to spread out through the earth, then God was going to help them to obey by frustrating their plans. And scattering them in that time so that one day men and women from every tribe, tongue, and nation would be united in him for all time was his purpose in doing that. 
From the earliest chapters of Genesis, this has been God's intent, to create a single, multinational people under himself and for his glory. Uh, The Old Testament prophets were all about that. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Zephaniah 3, 9 is really a commentary on Genesis chapter 11. Luke plainly records its progress, God's progress on this matter, in the uh, multinational gathering at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And then John writes of its full-bodied reality on the last day, when men and women, boys and girls, from every tribe and people and language will stand before the throne and in front of the Lamb, Revelation 7, 9. So this morning, as we come to the table, we're reminded of God's plan for for reuniting us in this way. Jesus, the very Word of God, the singular Word of God, the snake crusher from 315, the object of, Uh, uh, whom the prophets longed for. Jesus broke down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility between us that he might create in himself one new man, one new race, the Christian race, so making peace and reconciling us both to God in one body through the cross. One new man united by one living word. Jesus did that. He did that in history. He did that for those who are willing to exchange their hubris, their pride, their rebellion, their sin, their tower for the hope of his cross. And if you've already done that, then this meal here is for you. If you've never done that, but You'd like to do that? You'd like to exchange your tower for the cross of Christ? And by all means, this meal is for you as well. But if you're not ready, then simply take this time to pray. To pray that God would take his proper place in your life and that you would exchange your tower for his cross and your name for his. Well, as the servers come forward, just a brief word of instruction. You're welcome to come up any of the aisles. There'll be persons standing there with bread and a cup. Just take a piece of bread, you can dip it in the cup, and return to your seat, and then receive it when you're ready. There is a gluten-free station all the way over there to my right. May the Lord bless us all as we remember the great uniting work of God's word for men and women everywhere, all time, even here in our day. Amen.